Hi, this is Brad Redderson welcoming you to Stranova, a weekly half-hour business program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth. Welcome to Stranova. For today's show, let's start with a little thought experiment. Imagine you're running a company, or maybe a division in that company, and you've decided you need to do a new strategic plan. It doesn't matter what the reason is, whether you saw a new opportunity, or there's a new competitor that seems to have come up from nowhere, or sales just seem, well, stagnant. So what do you do? Analyze the old SWAT stuff, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats in that new business area you just discovered? Or do you grab the R&D folks and tell them you need something more clever, fresher than what your competitors are doing? Or maybe it's as simple as just whipping that sales force into better shape. Wrong. If you're Carol Sanford, our guest today on Stranova, you start your strategic planning by thinking about, well, how you think. And at the risk of getting a bit too cute with this, you'd better think about this, seriously. Carol's the founder of the highly successful and innovative resource organization, Interactive Development Group based in the Seattle, Washington area. She's been advising both Fortune 500 companies and emergent new technology businesses for over 25 years. She's guided companies as diverse as Colgate, DuPont, Weyerhaeuser, Yahoo, Silicon Graphics, and Agilent Technologies in getting their strategic thinking not only straight, but taking it to an entirely new level. She's the founding executive director of the Institute for Strategic Leadership at Washington State University's Vancouver campus and has published over 100 works in 10 languages. Carol, welcome to Stranova. Hi, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. Carol, as I said in my introduction, when you begin strategic planning work with new clients, you emphasize what I consider to be a unique starting point, helping them understand their own thinking patterns better. What does this mean to your clients to have them address thinking as the very first step in a new strategic planning process? I actually, I even call what I do regenerative systems thinking, which sounds like a bunch of complicated words. But what it really means is that <clears throat> the way we're thinking about what we're looking at actually determines what we see. And most of the time when we look at things, we see them as a bunch of parts, as separate things, rather than seeing that they're a system. So how does this work in practice with your clients? How do you get started with them doing this? Well, you provide them a framework with, that lets them start to see the relationships between things rather than the separateness. So you're moving them from seeing everything as um, almost like a pie where everybody is separate versus a relatedness. So an example of that would be most corporations are fully aware that they have a variety of stakeholders, such as the customer, they have investors either in the form of shareholders or bankers. Um, they have employees, which some people remember to count as a stakeholder. They have the communities they do business in. They have the earth, and if they move back upstream, they're aware of all their suppliers. But usually those are put in some sense on a list or on a matrix where they're all separate entities. That's a way of thinking about it, that breaking them apart. When we work with people, we put it onto a framework that lets them see the flow that actually happens between those and over time how you can leverage that connection. So you begin to understand that all of them are, have to win and all of them have to work together in order to succeed. And it's far more than just the idea of the triple bottom line. You know, this sounds like the old win-win concept in business. How is this different in your mind? 
Well, win-win literally still has things separate. One person wins and another person wins, rather than the system is helping all of the others be more effective. So it's, it's not about win-win or win-win-win. All of those still have people in their own box, and we're hoping each of them do okay. The system process really sees them as infinitely linked. They never are separate. So, for example, when you think about a customer, you can hold them in a box and you can think about their measures and you can even define quality measures and on-time delivery and all those kind of things. But if you really look at what it takes for that customer to be successful, it's flowing through a long series of events way earlier than the time it touches the customer. It goes back through either a manufacturing process or a service process. And so everything that customer gets is touched by every employee. It goes all the way back into a process where suppliers make choices about what they buy, what they bring to you. People separate that out and call it supply chain. But when the minute you pull it out and separate it, you make it very hard to see it as a part of a leverageable system moving through to the customer. And even on the other side of that, as the customer uses it and completes whatever they're doing, there is what might be called waste, although in nature there's no waste, but in our system there is. So something has to handle that. That's an entire flow through time, and much of that ends up in the communities in which people live. How well you do all of that determines how well an investor succeeds, whether the banker gets their money or the shareholder does. So they're actually not separate things, but they get treated as though they are separate and each must be worked on independently. This sounds great, but don't you get some resistance from some of the people you're dealing with? After all, this is a pretty major change in the way they have been thinking. Well, I wouldn't call it resistance. I do know that is a term that people use a lot, like people are resistant to change. There's actually only a part of us that's resistant to change. And if, if what you're doing is working toward something that is unique and distinctive to the organization, then the organization itself gets excited. When all you're doing is talking about just doing it different than you are now, that's where the resistance comes because no one likes to be told to just do something different than they are now. If, so when we start, we're starting with redefining what the essence of a company is about and what it's continuing to become over time as it gets closer and closer to what it really would ideally be. Uh, the same with a product. So, for example, um, and I'll come back and work on the question about the resistance, but this gives you an experience of why people don't resist. If you take something like toothpaste and you ask, what's the essence of toothpaste? Now, you know, you could say clean teeth, and that's fine. But if you were a company which had decided you really wanted to bring about the kind of thing we're talking about here, you begin to define it as something like oral health. And what that means is you can lay out a series of products over time that make a huge difference to people. Think about the money, the time, the energy we put on taking care of oral health issues. And if you could begin to have that be part of what's happening, you and you connect every individual's ability to contribute to that so that they can see how they're making a difference, then you don't have any resistance. Your major job is creating the right kind of order and strategy that allows that to flow out through time. It's really a matter of understanding how human nature, the brain, and uh, human psychology works, and then resistance is effortless if somebody at the top can see that possibility. Carol, as we've talked in preparation for this interview, you indicated that this whole process that you've used has some pretty deep roots. Could you share a little bit of that with our listeners? What I do is based in systems thinking, but that term 
is used nowadays to mean something we don't mean. It's usually used to talk about feedback loops where you get something uh, that's moving along and it spins out and it feeds back on itself. We don't believe that that is really uh, a sufficient level of systems thinking. And the basis of the work that um, I'm using we call regenerative, and that's because it's really in some ways the same way the Amish think about how they farm, where they want the produce to be healthier every year in terms of its nutritional value, not just prettier, not just get more money. What they're interested in is the nutritional value, which they know has to bring about a better soil, because if the soil isn't in the nutrients, it can't be in the, the produce. To do that, you have to have a better farmer every year. So regenerative systems thinking understands that there is a link between the ability to produce something different by changing the process and by changing the capability. It then allows everything to go to a new level. So as one Amish farmer told me, I'm really excited every year when I bring something here to the farm that I know is improving people's health. Uh, so it's that kind of system that it's based on. And it comes from many different sources of thinking, uh, everything from um, chaos theory and the new sciences to Buddhist practices, um, <laughs> to von Bertalanzi and some of those pieces. So there are a variety of sources for it. But our technology has created an integrated way of working with many uh, elements which come from separate places and putting them into a leverageable technology, we call it. You also mentioned a book to me that you recently read that tends to reinforce some of this thinking in a very big way. Could you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, it's a book I'm absolutely fascinated by. It's actually not that new. It's about seven or eight years old. It's called How the World Can Be the Way It Is by Steve Hagen. And Hagen himself is a Buddhist, but he's also a scientist. And what he's describing is the ability to move from a thing view of the world, or I say the something view of the world, to a process view of the world, or the everything view of the world. And if we're in a something view of the world, then I am separate from you, the investor is separate from the customer and the employee and all the other separate pieces. The world is broken up into chunks, and it takes an enormous amount of energy to work on them. Now, the problem is that that's not really true about how the world is, so we end up with a false view of reality. We're actually all incredibly linked. So that's what he's calling the, um, the process-level view or consciousness, which is what the basis of my work really is about, is consciousness. And then when you, what you start to see is the links about how everything is connected. So since most people have a cup of coffee in the morning, he uses the example of <clears throat> what is a cup of coffee? And so you sit and you try and describe what is a cup. You can say this is the cup of coffee, and now you're in that <clears throat> parts view of the world because we can see it separate from the desk it's sitting on or from our hand. But if you say what is a cup of coffee, it's a lot harder to describe. It is not just what's in that cup. It is what grew the beans. It is the family that grew the beans. It is how they tended the earth. It is the shipment process that got it there. And by the time it gets to your cup, the what can be very different for each cup of coffee. And so our ability to start to have this process view of how things are unfolding and that everything is linked um, he talks a bit about Bell's theorem, which is an extraordinarily interesting scientific principle 
uh, I've forgotten what year Bell discovered this, but he set out to prove that things are not connected. And what infuriated him was he found that even one small thing that happens anywhere actually affects movement in the stars. And that it is now known well in the scientific community, but not in our everyday community, that anything we do actually is affecting everything. He even says back and forward in time, but I'll at least start with in space. I think we commonly now call it the butterfly effect. That's kind of what Stephen Hagen, or a piece of what Hagen is talking about, is this two different level of view, but probably the summary is that the only one of those two that's real is the process view. And yet we run our businesses based on the thing view and all the separate pieces which allows us to make terrible decisions which degrade everything we touch and ultimately the business and its stakeholders. You know, this actually connects in very well with a discussion I was having last night with a group of venture capitalists on the discussion of some of the challenges that entrepreneurs face when they are starting up a company. And the reality is that when they are really dealing with discontinuous change in a concept or a product or whatever, they have a much bigger task ahead of them than they may initially realize. It's very common for entrepreneurs to be thinking about that they are producing a product or a new distribution channel or something like that and losing track of the fact that what they really have to build is an entire system, an entire infrastructure of not just themselves, but also the interrelationships with all the other companies that heretofore haven't been connected with them in this kind of endeavor. So it's a really major split with what they've been dealing with in the past. It's a pretty tough challenge for a group of people that are used to being focused on just the next new widget that they want to introduce to the world. Oh, absolutely. It's... Um... They're focused on the cup of coffee in some sense in this case, I mean, or whatever their a application is they're trying to build or the product they're trying to build. You know, Brad, to me, what's exciting about this is that you can actually build that capability. Most of us don't have it. We come up in school systems and then work systems, all which are fragmentedly uh, created. So the classroom, we divide people exactly by age, and sometimes then we sub track them or subdivide them out into by capability so we have high performers and low performers and then we separate them out by subjects and as we go through life we're increasingly divided up into more and more segments so we the mind from just that experience becomes segmented so it's not surprising the entrepreneur walks in and says my mind and my eyes are focused on this little piece but what we've experienced and what the basis of our work really is about um, we do it through doing strategic planning, redesigning a company, but what it's really about is rebuilding the mind that can do what the innovator does. So what's really exciting about this is not only, as your venture capitalists are pointing out, does the innovator, the entrepreneur, need to be able to see that they're building a whole system, but they need to see that they're building a dynamic, living, changing system. So that cup of coffee that we have isn't the same, as we said earlier, because everything upstream from that is changing and everything downstream is changing. The, the thing that's really exciting and hopeful is that one can actually build this capability, and venture capitalists need to learn this, that when they see great ideas, part of the think tank process and building the incubator process 
is building this capacity to think in a more whole way, to think in a process way, which means to see something flowing, see all the connects and links, to see it as dynamic, to see it as changing, and to understand that how they think is going to give them the capacity to really be innovative or to be static in what they design or to be partial because they're down here working on just the cup that's in front of them. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, welcome back. We're talking to Carol Sanford, the founder and principal of Interactive Development Group, on the subject of regenerative system thinking in business. Carol, with what we've just heard as background, can you give us some examples of where this kind of thinking has truly transformed the strategy of some of the businesses you've been working with? Sure. Let's uh, let's do two. One, let's do a consumer products, and then let's do a, a fairly technical one. Uh, the consumer products would be Kings for Charcoal, which before they were learning to think this way, really were literally looking at the bag of charcoal. And they were trying to figure out how to improve charcoal. They were a small regional brand. They were nowhere near what we know about them right now. I can tell you the story because it's way past any proprietary questions. But in the midst of beginning to look at charcoal and looking into the stream of the consumer using it and starting to really feel and live into the guy standing in the backyard, and by the way, it is almost all guys, you really started to define that what you were doing was creating a macho experience. The need for the guy who's cooking to have it light perfectly every time, to be able to have it sustain cooking, to be able to have it cook it to the right temperature, to know that you could control it. In fact, the inability to do that was allowing gas grills to take off, and it looked like we might even not have charcoal. But this ability to visualize going all the way back upstream and then all the way into the customer's experience to allow them to redefine that what they were creating was a backyard experience. As a result, they, start, they invented many of the products we have now, including the chimney that people use so you don't even have to use volatiles that uh, then, of course, are bad on the environment and they don't even smell very good while you're standing there cooking. And it allowed them to go back upstream and begin to understand what the making of charcoal did in terms of what it was producing on the grill. They created many changes which saved them money, but they also were environmentally uh, improving. Like they were putting too much water in, and an operator figured this out, a guy with an eighth grade education in West Virginia standing there looking. He's got this process view of something moving, and he's starting to see all right, we put water into this slurry, we get it to a certain kind of state, we press it into a, a piece of coal, we move it through a process that heats it and de dehydrates it so now that it holds together, and it comes out on the other side, and we've used a lot of energy to make that and a lot of water. He started playing around with different combinations. Again, he's holding in his mind this downstream picture of the macho guy, of whom he was one, charcoaling. It allowed him to change and everybody to begin to innovate, even in an ordinary organization with an eighth grade education, and upstream to be able to create products that begin to win awards. And in fact, within two years after that, Kingsford won the 100 most innovative products in, um, in Fortune's list of magazines, or of product development. Now, that's a really boring little product, right? <laughs> But let's take one that's a lot more technical. The DuPont Corporation made a product um, 
called titanium dioxide. And it's in almost everything that we use. It's in makeup that women uh, wear on their faces, maybe men too, but primarily women. It is uh, in paint that's on a wall, and it's in the middle of Oreo cookies. Now, titanium dioxide was a commodity. It also was a very destructive mining process. When they really began to look at what the essence of the product was that they needed in terms of opacity, they started to realize that they could use different grades of ore and be able to use much less destructive mining processes because they didn't need as high grade an ore to produce their product. They would have not ever gotten there without this system view of understanding exactly what the essence was of the product. They would have just continued efficiencies. Let's figure out how to have it cost less. They might even, and did have, environmental groups who were in demanding they be less destructive, but there was no link to the whole system, and so they were getting sub-optimized um, solutions until they could see the whole system. It then gave them a way to invent a whole new piece of technology that is still proprietary at this point, allows them to cut by 90% the amount of um, mining that they needed to do to produce a much higher quality product. And all of that you know, did lots of environmental kinds of things. It helped the communities they were living in who were fighting them like crazy. It gave our customers a better product, and obviously they got higher margins on it. That ability to see systemically is the source of innovation. It is the source of improvement, but it's a mental capacity. It's a consciousness, and it has to be built or people don't do it naturally. They do the partial view that gives them falsehoods about how the world works. Well, thank you, Carol, for that excellent overview of regenerative systems thinking and how you've applied it with your clients. I'm sure our listeners would also be interested in hearing a little bit more about your own company, Interactive Development Group. Could you tell us a little about it? Interactive is a company that is dedicated to building the capability for businesses and organizations to work consciously, with consciousness. And this requires bringing about systems thinking. So this is what we do. The word interactive, or the name itself, is very meaningful in that the inter really has to do with the interaction, uh, the interdynamics between whole systems. And the octave is much like on a piano, where you understand that this is happening on different levels. Today, we would explore two levels, which is moving from the something view, the thing view, to the everything view, where we're linked. Those are two different octaves on a scale, and it's not that one goes away, but the context changes completely. So our work is trying to bring about this capability in everyone because we believe that we can't solve the complex problems we have with the current mind we've got. And where can we find you on the Internet, Carol? It's www.interoctave, that's I-N-T-E-R-O-C-T-A-V-E.com. And they can find me on there, and then they can email me at carolsanford at interoctave.com if they would like to talk further. That's C-A-R-O-L-S-A-N-F-O-R-D, no dots, no periods, no underlines. Well, thanks again, Carol, very much for joining us on Stranova. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate being asked. For further information on the topics discussed in this week's show, as well as for other information on the intersection of strategy and innovation, please visit us at www.stranova.com. Also, if you have any comments on this week's show or suggestions for future shows, please feel free to contact us at ideas at This recording 
is copyright 2005 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson, thanking all of you for joining us this week on Spernova.